this morning. Uh, and like I said earlier, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back around you. Um, if you are using the seat back Bible, it should be like 848, 849 is where we'll be uh, this morning. If you're turning there, I'd like to thank uh, the folks who just got off the stage, um, our worship team. Uh, the group of people who use the gifts and talents God has given them to help lead us into worship, to help lead us into the presence of God, to sing His praises, to enjoy Him, to help lead us to make a joyful noise to the Lord, to help um, help us engage, help us remove distraction, help us to just be in His presence and enjoy and worship Him. Um, and so, everybody in the worship team, thank you so much for the time, the effort, the energy to that you put in uh, to serve our church. If you are interested in jumping in on the worship team, uh, you can go ahead and circle that on the connect cards and uh, drop that in the offering plate, and Daniel will connect with you to give you more information. So, um, as I said, we're going to be in Mark 12 uh, this morning. And you know, we have in our lives uh, many different ways to identify ourselves. Uh, the government provides us with IDs, such as driver's license or passport, your work or school, uh, you probably have a work or school ID of some sort. Social media has us creating little profiles describing ourselves. Uh, even as you search for a job, you put together a resume, a cover letter, uh, trying to sell yourself to your hopeful, hopeful future employer. Um, but all of these things only give you really an idea, a piece, give you just snippets and ideas of the full, complex puzzle of who you are. You know, if you look at my driver's license, you'll get facts and figures about my name and height and address. Um, my resume will tell you where I've worked, where I went to school. Social media will tell you that I like coffee and the Cubs. Um, and I enjoy hitting pause, watching the movie right at the right time for actors to make really awkward faces. I just think that's really funny. Um, but that's not all of who I am. To get to know me, you got to talk to me. You have to spend time with me, ask questions, observe me as I live my life. When we talk about Jesus, the same can be true. So you can know facts and figures, you can know bits and pieces of the story, but if you don't have, if you only have head knowledge, you only know information, and you don't have what my father in law likes to say is heart knowledge, a belief in who Christ is and who Jesus is, then you will have dire consequences for your eternal existence. So this morning, as we jump back into Mark, as we've been doing this study, we're going to talk about simply who Jesus is, who he's not, and how we're going to respond to that. So that's the plan for this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in. So uh, please uh, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day. We thank you for this chance to get together. Lord, you brought us here right now. You brought us to this moment. You have given us today. You met us as our eyes opened this morning. You brought us safely through the night. And Lord, with that same power we have, you would defend us and protect us. Let us not give in to the temptations of sin. God, I ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe, and feet to move as one to believe. God, we know you are speaking this morning. You are always speaking, and you are speaking this morning. Help us to be quiet, to listen, and respond. Lord, I pray that as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to start in Mark 12. Uh, we're going to start in verse 35. We're actually going to start here, and we're going to move back around to the passage before it. But um, we're going to start in verse 35. So. 
1235, it says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribe say that Christ is the Son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he this time? And the great throng heard him glad. Let's stop there. This passage, uh, even just these couple of verses, it is kind of confusing words. Right? It's a lot of repeated nouns and pronouns. He, Lord, Lord, he said, and he said, it kind of can get a little overwhelming as Jesus is asking this question. We know as we've been studying Mark, Jesus has been getting asked questions by the leaders of the synagogue over and over again. They come to him with these fake questions, trying to trick and trap him, trying to get him to say something inappropriate. But now it's finally it's Jesus' turn to ask a question. And so I want to try and simplify it a little bit because the way he's the way it's worded uh, in translation can be kind of confused. So I want to try and simplify it. We're going to break it down and look at it. So basically, the question is this. Jesus says that the teachers of the law say that the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of God, that he is the son of David. But David himself says that the Christ is his Lord. How can both of these things be true at the same time? How can someone be a son but be their father's Lord? Edward Lord is also to be superior above them. So how can these two things be true at the same time? So I want to break this down and kind of look at both sides of this question Jesus is asking. So he says that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David. You can go throughout the Old Testament, and I got a list of them for you. Um, you can read as you're doing your personal readings throughout the week. Um, you can go look at that. There's a host of scripture that says that Christ is the son of David, or from the line of David, the branch of David, the seed of David. So there's a lot of different verses there. I'm going to read you just a couple of uh, bits of two of them just so you have an idea of what I'm talking about. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, um, a familiar passage for some of you. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you heard that he will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom he will reign. Second Samuel 7:16, God specifically promising David, speaking to King David, says specifically to him, Your house, your kingdom will continue before me for all time. Your throne will be secure. Throughout history, it was understood that the Messiah would be a descendant of King David, the greatest king Israel ever known. Lord, God says, David is a man after my own heart. He is put up as one of the, the pillars of faith to look at. And all throughout history, all the prophecies have said, the Messiah that's coming, this one who's going to come and defeat Satan and defeat sin and reestablish the kingdom, this one is going to come from the line of David. The problem is that so much got tied into David's role as king and this Messiah coming after him that the idea was thought that the Messiah was going to be to establish a new earthly kingdom like David had. When in actuality, the Messiah is going to come to do so much more to bring a heavenly kingdom. And so all throughout here, like I said, we can look at Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage. So when he says the scribes say that David, the Messiah is going to be the son of David, the descendant of David, Scripture backs that up over and over again. These guys who are studiers of the law say, okay, that's what the Scripture is telling us. 
But now we look at Jesus' side of things because Jesus also says, well, but David himself said that the Lord is his Lord. This verse that he quotes um, in Mark 12 is uh, from Psalm 110, which is actually the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Psalm 110. And this psalm would be oftentimes sung during the coronation of a new king of Israel. Because you see that first line. Um, it says, the Lord said to my Lord. Okay? That could be kind of confusing. Um, in the, on the screen, um, you put the next one up. Come on, thank you. Uh, so where it says, the Lord said to my Lord. That first Lord, you see, I capitalized all the letters. I mean, if your Bible is probably all caps, um, now everyone looks down. Uh, and so, it's probably all caps. When it's all caps like that, um, that is... Our way of saying uh, it's Yahweh. The word that's being used there, the Hebrew word is Yahweh. The, the word for God that the Israelites would use. They didn't want to use the actual full name of God. They used this. Um, they took different letters. It's a whole other sermon. Um, but when you see the Lord capitalized like that, it's, it's, they're talking about God. They're talking about God, Heavenly Father, Yahweh. And so it says, Yahweh says to my Lord, that word is Adonai. That means superior, uh, master. It can also be God at times. But it's a, it's a smaller idea. Here it's being used as a superior, a master, a king. So they would sing this song, and they would talk about how Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, send to this new king, sit at my right hand, be in a place of prominence, a place of prestige. You are being, you are being uh, encouraged, supported, and lifted up, and God is with you as the new king. But over time and throughout history, as the kingdoms broke down, as the kingdoms were uh, separated and then completely abolished when the Israelites were taken over, this psalm began to take a different meaning. As the Israelites were being persecuted, as they were being attacked, they began to read this and see this and see it as this is a prophecy about the Messiah. This is about that next one who is coming. The Messiah and his role to rule and to reign. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, Jesus makes a point to say, when David was writing this song, he was writing it under the direction of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about a Messiah he would never actually meet. See, the Bible is written over the course of thousands of years by multiple authors, and each one writes in a different style, different wording, different genres. Right? The Psalms of David are very different from the practical instruction of the letter from James. The writings of Paul are written very grammatically and uh, sometimes extensively. Very, it's written by someone who has a lot of schooling, right? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had gone through a lot of formal training. He writes like that. Whereas when you read 1 John, 1 John is very simple grammar, very simple sentences, because John was a blue-collar kind of guy. He didn't have extensive training. So the Bible has a variety of authors, a variety of different genres. God didn't just dictate to the, each guy and say, okay, I want you to say exactly this in this style in this way. Rather, the, the scriptures were written as an inspiration. The Holy Spirit would come upon these men and they would write, but each of them were tackling their subject matter with their words in their way. So is David here writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penning something that would speak about Jesus hundreds of years later. And David himself declares that the Messiah that is to come is greater than he is. That the Messiah who is to come is his Lord, is his master, is his superior. And the only way for both of these things to be true, for the Messiah to be a descendant of David, but also David's Lord, was if the Messiah 
isn't just a guy appointed by God to save them, but rather he is something more. He is God in the flesh come to earth. Because if the Messiah is just a guy that God appointed, no matter how great a king, how great a ruler or person he may be, he would still have sin. He would still fail. And he wouldn't be greater. It wouldn't make him greater than David. David would have no reason to consider the Messiah to be his Lord and Master. But if the Messiah was something more, was someone more, if he was God in the flesh, well, then it is only fitting to say he is above you in every way possible. And so Jesus asked this question, and really this is a rhetorical question. You could um, go digging for the answer, but you're not going to find the, the response. There's not a, it's a rhetorical question. Jesus is asking this question to force the people listening, to force us to consider what do we actually believe about who Jesus is. He is the descendant of David, promised by God thousands of years beforehand. He is the culmination of the line of promise we see worked out in the course of the Old Testament. He is by blood from the line of David. Jesus was completely and fully human. That's not the whole story. Because he is also fully and completely God as well. He is God in the flesh. Divinity walked the very earth that he created and then was killed for the sin of the so how is it possible that this Messiah is both David's son and David's Lord? What's the, what's the answer there? It's because Jesus was both fully God and fully man. He is the both and that was needed. He is the suffering servant, but he's also the king of kings. He is the son of David and the son of God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but he is also the Lion of Judah who conquers you see, you can't follow Christ without knowing who he is. You can't grow in becoming like him if you don't know who it is you're trying to become like. And we won't hold roles and titles that he does. We are not the Alpha nor the Omega. But you can grow in being like him in character and quality of life. Because when you study the Gospels, you are studying Jesus. You are seeing how God himself would deal, would interact, would live this life. The mission of Christian Fellowship Free Church is to be a group of people who are becoming Christ-like and proclaiming Christ. But how can we grow in becoming like him or even tell others about him if we don't actually know him? And so you can read scripture, scripture and come with questions like, how do I be Christ-like in regards to the poor, the homeless, the helpless, the immigrant? How do I be Christ-like in regards to the people who don't like me? who are different than me, the people who hate me? How do I be Christ-like in regards to this government that I may or may not support? We see many of these things played out in the Gospels. It's why studying the Bible is so vital. You want to know who Jesus is? You want to know what he's like? You want to know how we are called to live? You want to know how we, how we are called to live these things out and grow in Christ's likeness? You've got to be in the Word. You've got to read it and study it and know it and know Him because this is God revealing Himself to you. So who is He? He is the Son of David. Yes, but He is also the Son of God. He is the Messiah promised. He is God in the flesh come to earth to live perfectly and die painfully and through the resurrection defeat sin powerfully. So that's who Jesus is, but it's also important to know who he's not. 
Because in a world like ours today, there are all kinds of different voices, all kinds of different people and ideas claiming they are the way, they are the truth, they are the life. So you got to know, yes, who he is, but you also got to know who he's not. So we're going to keep reading. We're going to go to verse 38. It says, in, And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like readings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor and peace, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus gives a warning about the scribes, about some of those religious leaders that he's been interacting with. He says they like to walk around in long robes. The scribes would be dressed in these white, bright white linen robes all the time and all the way down to their feet. They always wanted to look clean and special and set apart. Commoners, regular people, would try and put color into their clothing. They always want, they said, that's for the normal people. We are set apart, so we're going to wear white all the time and stick out. You know, on Easter, we tend to dress up, right? It's one of the few times you guys, a lot of you give me looks because it's one of the few times in the year you see me. We all tend to dress up and look good on Easter. We put on our best, right? And after Easter, after the service, I don't go and try and dig up the yard and change the oil on my car, right? I'm not going to do hard work like that in a suit. The scribes had the same philosophy with their eyes. They weren't going to try and get messy with the people. They wanted to be set apart. They wanted to be excluded <laughs> from the people. And their clothes, the way they carried themselves, showed it. There's nothing wrong with looking nice. There's nothing wrong with dressing nice. You want to look good? Look good. Do you. That's awesome. This is about them not wanting to be like those people. They wanted to be seen as special, and they refused to get mixed in with the commoners. Jesus, on the other hand, was constantly with the people. It's part of why he got baptized at the beginning of his ministry. He had no sin to repent of, but he was baptized to identify with us in our humanity. He spent his time with the sick and the poor and the sinners and the rejects and the outcasts of society. In the midst of all of that ugliness, he was the light in the darkness. He was the doctor to the sick, the hope to the hopeless. He, more than anyone else, had the right to be set apart, to be seen and live as one who is special. But he chose instead to be in and amongst the people he came to save. What do your relationships you spend all of your time with people who think like you, act like you, believe like you. Now, amen, you need to have Christian friends, you need to have those inner those people you can walk along with, you can be open and vulnerable with, and engage with, and build community with. But you are also called to be a light in the world. And if you are only around other lights all of the time, and never using your light to shine in the darkness, are you using your light to the best of some of you guys know uh, I'm playing kickball this summer. I'm going to kickball with you this summer. And, uh, yep, I'm an adult who plays kickball. That's the thing that happens. Uh, part of the reason I wanted to do that uh, was because I'm super competitive and Benji can't catch a ball yet. But also, uh, I realized that most of my time is spent with church people, spent with you all. And amen. I love it. I love you all. I love this church. But if I'm going to stand up here and tell you the only lights in the world, and all I do is spend time with church people, well, that doesn't make any kind of sense. So I want to put myself in a place where I can be around people who I don't really know, people who may.
may or may not know Jesus. People may or may not know the gospel. Uh, and just read and build relationships. I'm not preaching sermons every time we, we win a game or lose a game. Um, but I'm just being friends and building relationships and asking to get to know people, um, following up when they tell me something's coming up. Let them know I'm praying for them. Let them know I'm a pastor. Um, and, and just trying to build those relationships and be in a place that I wouldn't normally put myself. And it's intentional at that time where, okay, i got to be real intentional with how I'm spending this, these couple of hours with these people. Um, but it's good, and it's, it's something different, and uh, it's an opportunity to try and stretch myself. Are you spending time with people where you are actually having a chance to be alone? Because let me tell you, the, the neighborhood you live in, the apartment you live in, the school you go to, the work that you are at, God has put you there intentionally. He's not killing time until your next thing. He's got you where you are for the exact right reason at the exact right time. We talk about it all the time here, right? God doesn't waste time. He doesn't waste his or yours. So where you are right now, you are called to be a light to the world in the place you are right now. Are you engaged in that place? Are you engaged in that community? Or are you setting yourself up? goes on and talks about how the scribes love the greetings in the marketplace. You see, along with their white robes, the scribes, because of their roles and influence, it was expected that people would greet them as they walked by in public. Rabbi, father, master, these are the titles of respect that would be lavished upon them as they walked by. And they loved the attention, the pomp and circumstance that went with the role. Now, it's not bad to say hello to people. It's not bad to want to have people say hello to you. But when you are expecting people to give you attention, you are allowing your own ego to drive your decisions. If you come to church expecting that when you walk into a room, everyone's going to stop what they're doing and give you the norm treatment from Cheers. I'm glad there's four people down there. You're missing them. Intentional community is a value that we hold dear here at CF. I say it during all of our membership classes that you can't expect community from other people if you aren't willing to build community yourself. Intentional community means each of us as individuals actually engaging with one another. It's a group effort, not expecting everyone to pay attention and look at me all the time. If you aren't willing to invest in care and knowledge of other people, why would other people want to do that? We are seeking to build a community, and that means all of us coming in setting our own ego aside to care for one another. They wanted the best seats at the gatherings in the synagogue. They wanted the attention and notoriety that came with their role, the perks of being the scribe. In contrast, what's the key verse? Way back like a year ago when we started Mark. I said the key verse for the Gospel of Mark is Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul carries that idea out in Philippians 2, where he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's talk about perks. Let's talk about reputation honor and prestige. Jesus left heaven to come to earth, to be born to a couple of nobodies from the middle of nowhere. He grew up in obscurity, 
broke and basically homeless, allowing himself to be arrested, beaten, and executed for you and for me. He knew what he deserved. He knew what he deserved, the honor and glory and praise and adoration, but instead he took on what we deserve, pain and death, the full and complete wrath of God poured out on himself so that the judgment for sins of humanity so that anyone who would put their faith in Jesus and him alone as the Son of God and Messiah, put faith in his life, death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins, would find forgiveness and hope and new and eternal life. Christ came not to be served, but to serve. He didn't live a life built around putting himself first always, but rather he put us first. That's not bad to be celebrated. Be the center of attention. This past weekend at all our families in town gave it was my grandma's 90th birthday. It's actually today tomorrow. Um, we threw a party and surprise for her on Friday. Everybody was in town from out of state. Her friends were there. It was awesome. She loved it. Um, she was just she was glowing. It was great to have those days where you could celebrate and enjoy something. But the question really what Jesus is saying when he talks about these scribes who want to sit in the best places all the time. The question is, how are you living? put others before yourself? How are you serving? When's the last time you set yourself aside? You set aside what you deserve so that someone else could prosper, could be encouraged, could be celebrated. It says these scribes would devour widows' houses. See, for all the negative they talk about the scribes, they didn't have a normal nine-to-five job. And so since the Old Testament times and the the priests and the Levites, laws were put in place where basically the people would help support uh, the scribes and those who worked in the temple and in the synagogues so that they could they could serve in the temple and synagogues and didn't have to worry about food and clothing and shelter and all these things. Scribes were not rich in general, but what would happen is the scribes would use their reputation and influence to take advantage of the generosity of the people, and they would keep money for themselves. Jesus speaks specifically to taking advantage of the widows in the community, those who are vulnerable and lack influence and power. The scribes were using their role to prey on vulnerable women. God cares about the oppressed. He cares about the hurt and the abused and the forgotten and left behind. He is the hope and protector of those people. And he has deputized the church to take up that mantle for him, to be the hands and it is the expectation that God's church is a place where people can find rest and healing, acceptance and care and help. The expectation, and that expectation finds its origin in God himself expecting that from his people. Way back in Exodus, way back in Deuteronomy, way back when the law was first formed, he says, you were aliens, you were sojourners, you were foreigners, and I cared for you, I made you a people. You need to care for others. See, recently much has been made about the idea of the church pursuing justice. And how does, how does the church pursue justice, but also where does the gospel come into play there? What we're striving to do here at CF, we want to be a lighthouse. We want to be a place that shines the light of the gospel. We want to shine the light of the gospel with our words and in our actions. And that's easier said and written than done. Because oftentimes what happens is you get a church who wants to pursue justice ministry. Clothe the feed the hungry. House the homeless. Do all of those things. And oftentimes what happens is you pursue those things and they put the gospel in the backseat. They make excuses and say, 
well, we've got to build relationships, we've got to go take care of these people, we'll worry about salvation later. Preaching the gospel becomes a secondary endeavor, if at all. And those are good things to do. God wants justice to happen. We should pursue seeing that when people are taking advantage of the church, should be the first to stand up and say, that's not right, and step in and help. But if we lose sight of the fact that people are eternal, what have we really done? Because you can clothe and feed and house and care for a person and help them make their 20, 30, 40, 60, 80, however much time they have here, make that comfortable. But if you lose sight of the fact that those 20, 30, however long they have on this earth is a small microcosm of eternity that they're going to spend. And you never consider the fact that to offer them the gospel, the hope of the gospel, and they spend eternity in hell. Cool, you fed them, you clothed them, but then they spend eternity separated from God. What have you actually done? You took care of a speck of time in comparison to their entire existence. And on the flip side of that, if we preach the gospel, if we preach the Bible, we don't as individuals and as a church actually live into those things. That's a pretty good sign you don't actually believe the gospel you preach. The good news of the gospel is so life-altering, life-changing, and in some cases, life-shattering that it should matter. It should affect things. It should make things different. And if you preach and preach and preach, but never actually live like you believe what you preach, why would anyone care? Why would anyone listen? And again, I question whether or not you actually believe it if your faith does not turn into action. So why can't it be both and? Why can't you proclaim the gospel and also live in response to it? It's hard. It's messy, and it takes intentionality. And I'll tell you, it is life-giving and God-giving, and that's what it means to be a light in the world. And so we want to preach the truth and proclaim Scripture and let it stand on its own, knowing that these are the words of life that God's given us. And we want to be a church with people who respond to it. So we want to serve at Restaurant Roswell. We want to be part of helping clean this neighborhood up. We want to donate our time and money and efforts to organizations like Cradles to Friends. We want to do whatever we can to love and serve the places God has put us. Not just Roswell Village, but the neighborhoods and places where God has called each one of us to be lights in the world. Too often, the church is known for the abuses of power and privilege. That is not who Jesus is. It is not who we are to be. And you see at the end of this passage, he says that greater condemnation is coming for those who know better and choose their own way of God. He closes this out and he says they make long prayers for pretense, for appearances sake. They have these long, drawn-out prayers. They would raise their voices and make a spectacle of themselves, drawing attention to themselves. We have a, a prayer in the Gospel of Matthew where there is a Pharisee praying and he says, thank you God, I'm not like this sinner. They would pray out loud, bashing other people in public. Long prayers like that are Long prayers don't have to be evil. Long prayers can be good. When those prayers about trying to actually connect with God, those prayers are good and life giving. But when you are praying in front of people and you're trying to impress them with your own holiness, you want to have these long, drawn out prayers and impressive words and theological ideas just to make yourself a big deal, you have missed the point and value of your prayer. Because a very simple prayer of God help, that's a good, powerful, real, honest prayer. Romans 8, 26, Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know when to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with the groanings too deep for words. When you can't even come up 
guttural groan. The Holy Spirit can translate that, and you're going to see that you're going to have. Long prayers don't have to be bad, but Jesus spends a lot of time in the gospel praying. And you want to be truly blessed, you want to have a moment where you just feel completely blessed and cared for, go find a seasoned, mature Christian, somebody who's on that different level of God, somebody who talks to God on a different, connected level. And ask them to pray over you. Ask them to pray for you. You'll see what a long prayer can look like when it's real and honest. Every other Thursday, our elders get together um, and we, we spend time praying and praying for one another. And I almost every time, prayer time goes long, um, goes longer than what I anticipate it's going to go. Um, because your elders are men who love you deeply and care about you deeply. And so they want to spend a lot of time going to their Heavenly Father on your behalf and to churches. And it's such a blessing to get to sit at that table every, every other Thursday and just hear them pray, to get to walk alongside them as they go to the throne of God. Go find somebody who's got that seasoned, mature Christian and ask them to pray over you. Now you will find out what a long, good, deep, honest prayer sounds like. Now, as, as Jesus has warned about who these scribes are and some of the ways they act, if you're hearing some of that and you're feeling like, You've heard some of that, and you feel like it's, you're being attacked. That's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, it's time to change. It's time to repent. Because yes, it says greater condemnation is coming for those who know better and choose their own way. But at the same time, our God is gracious and has gifted you with another day, an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to ask God to show you where are the areas where I'm like the scribes, where I am unlike Christ and to change those things, to do, ask God to do a work in you to change those things and take some steps to make an effort to pursue Him. So we've talked about who Jesus is and who He's not, so how do we respond to that? What do we do in light of that? We're going to loop back around. We're going to go to verse 28. And we're going to close with this. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This seems like this is one of the, the few times where Jesus has an interaction with a religious leader where they come with an actual honest question not trying to trick or trap him. And they say, this scribe, after hearing Jesus go back and forth with the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, he says, what commandment is the most important of all? He's not looking for a specific something off of the Torah. He says, Jesus, what's the most important thing? What's the driving force? What's the thing that we're supposed to be doing all the time, always, every day? What's the thing that ties everything else together? And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6.4. It's known as the Shema Yisrael, hear Israel. It's the first two words. This is the centerpiece of prayer for the Jewish people. Everybody knows this. This is the equivalent for our John 3.16. 
This prayer was recited in the mornings. It was recited in the evenings. It was posted up on the walls at home. It was everywhere. You knew this one backwards and forwards. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all of your emotions, your desires, your hopes and joys, your fears and worries. They should all lead you to worship, love, rest in the presence, and rely on God. With all your soul, this word is psyche, your life, your actual individual existence. How you live your day-to-day should be in response to loving God. It should exemplify your love for God. With all your mind. See, Christianity is not, does not exclude or ignore your mind, your intellect, and intelligence. We don't turn our minds off when we encounter God, when we read Scripture, when we decide how to live in light of these things. No, in fact, Scripture tells us, take every thought captive. Be intentional about the way you think. Take every thought captive to glorify God. Take hold and point your thoughts toward your king. Love him with all your strength, your physical, emotional, mental strength. The energy you have, the energy you have to live and work and be is a gift from God. Use it to love him. Jesus is saying, the Shema is saying, love God with all that you have been given, all that you are, all that you will be, your goal, your mission. You are created in the likeness and image of God to love him, to glorify him. That's the point. That's the thing that ties everything together. And Jesus continues. He could have left it alone because that's a mic drop kind of moment. He could have left it alone, but he continues and says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you are loving God with all that you are, then a natural byproduct of that would be to love your neighbor as yourself. Love people. Warren Wiersbe said, if we love God, we will experience his love within us and will express that love to others. We do not live by rules, but by relationships. A loving relationship to God that enables us to have a loving relationship with others. Love others the way you want to be loved. How do you want to be loved? Every one of us wants unconditional love. We want to be fully and completely, without hesitation, accepted and cared for. Welcomed. Blemishes, faults, idiosyncrasies, and all. That's what we want. Show that to others. That's a big ask. And the only reason you're going to be able to do that is because you have accepted, you have received that from God. He made you. He sculpted you. He created you. And he knows all of you. He knows the good and the bad. He knows the positive and the negative. He sees it all, and yet he still loves you so much that he would send his son to die for you. You have a father in heaven who loves you unconditionally. Not because you have done something to earn or impress him. That is literally the opposite definition of unconditional. He loves you unconditionally. Every part of you. And once you have tasted that love, once you have experienced it, you felt it and believed it and let it wash over you, you can then in turn show that kind of love to others. Love God, love people. Our values at CF are based out of those ideas. Devotion to Bible teaching and preaching and prayer. Value of intentional relationships and multi-generational relationships. Love God, love people. After Jesus gives his answer, the scribe tells him he agrees with him. They actually have a civil discourse. They agree about loving God and loving people, that it's more powerful, more important than any sacrificial temple system, that God sees more value in how you love him and love others more than anything you think you can bring to the table. And Jesus tells the man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You understand, you get it, you understand what God truly wants. It's not stuff. 
It's not rules and regulations. It's not the self-made, self-righteousness of the Pharisees. It is a heart for him. It's a devotion to him. And out of that devotion, a love and care for people. The scribe was close, but he was missing something. He's missing Jesus. While the Shema might be the thing that guides how to live without Christ, you're still just close. And close doesn't cut it. When it comes to your eternity, when it comes to your eternal existence, this is not horseshoes or hand grenades. Where do you stand with Jesus? Don't get close. Get Jesus. Because he's offering all of himself to you this morning. If you will put your faith in him and then live like you actually believe it. Live like you know Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God. Love him with all that you are and love people as yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your word, God, your living, breathing, active word. It challenges, it encourages, it rebukes. It calls us back to yourself. God, to love in the way that you love, is that's a big, heavy ask. That's a big, heavy command. We and you know that we can't do that on our own. We can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to live as people who actually believe that your Son died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again, that he gives us new life. Help us to live as people who actually believe that. Let that be the life-changing thing that it is. Let that be a thing that we rediscover and re-remind ourselves every morning of the grace and love and forgiveness found at the cross. Let that be the thing that drives us, the thing that motivates us, the thing that challenges and helps us to reflect on and be intentional with every interaction, every moment by moment, taking our thoughts captive. Seeing every interaction as an opportunity to be a light in this world. God, I pray that if there is anyone who doesn't know you, who hasn't accepted Jesus and him alone, not Jesus plus their good works, not Jesus plus being nice, not Jesus plus anything else, Lord, that they would accept his life, death, burial, and resurrection as the forgiveness of their sins. That they would find their standing with you as righteous, counted righteousness to them because of Jesus. Lord, if there's anyone who doesn't know that, who hasn't experienced that, Lord, I pray you break down whatever walls, whatever barriers, whatever issues they might have. Reveal yourself to be the good father that you are, the good shepherd that you are, the, the king and ruler and the one who wants to love and care for them and lead them. And God, for those who know you, those who claim to be Christians, those who walk with you, Lord, we pray that we would walk in a way that glorifies you. That we don't take plays off. We don't take days off. We don't put it to the back burner. That we live like we believe that we live as the lights that you have called us to be. God, we can't do that on our own. And so we ask, we plead, we beg that you would guide us, that you would teach us how to listen to your word and to respond to it. Give us the boldness to live like we believe that Christ is who he said he is. The Son of God, the Messiah, the one who would come to save, the one who would come to make all things new. God, we thank you. And we-